This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, MidwayUSA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. We love our children. We protect them. We guide them. We prepare them for life in the world. With all that we do, from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstance, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the hardest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. Join HuntOfALifetime.org to help make dreams come true, to provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nonprofit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit HuntOfALifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference. Brought to you in part by International Wildlife Crime Stoppers, New Hampshire Wildlife Heritage Foundation, and Maine Operation Game Thief. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. 
Listen to the tales and experience of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Warden's Watch, episode 104, 104, part two of Chris Johnson, Alaska State Trooper. We had to do a part two because Chris just had some dynamic stories, and I think uh, he ended the, the podcast with me last time by telling me, boy, we'd even talk about the time I truck went through the ice and I was like oh boy that's definitely a story for Warden's Watch so Chris let's do this again and he not only gave us that story but a few others that are really really cool so I enjoyed my trip to Alaska uh, listening to Chris and I think you'll continue to to enjoy your trip to Alaska as well to understand uh, a little bit Alaska and Chris goes into the Alaskan State Troopers and his transition there and what makes him very unique, which is uh, pretty incredible. So, um, Also, they're offering a $20,000 sign-on bonus currently. So if you ever thought that you might want to make that move to Alaska, now might be the time. Um, I want to continue with reading some of my uh, my ratings and reviews here on Apple Podcasts. Uh, it's been great, and I appreciate everybody that has uh, done a recent uh, updated review. I appreciate that, uh, and we'll be getting to those eventually. <laughs> but um, since I have never done this before, I've, I've got a little backlog here, so we're going to go through a few more here. So the title of this is uh, Warden's Watch, Jacob T. 99. And Jacob says, amazing content for game wardens, aspiring game wardens, and those interested in the outdoors. Wayne does a great job of being diverse in his interviews, bringing not only game wardens, but other individuals related to the outdoor industry. I enjoy the podcast, and I hope it continues on. Thanks, Jacob. The next one I titled, Great. Fantastic job at showing the world what game wardens do on a day-to-day basis. Thank you. Um, The next one is from Austin... And I won't say a last name, just in case you don't want it. But uh, I'm listening to this podcast all the time and always makes me happy knowing that you were trying to bring people back to being a game warden. And I really agree with you that there's not enough game wardens in the country. Thank you. Well, thank you, Austin. I appreciate that. This one, I love the title of this, Must Listen! Exclamation Point. This podcast is amazing for game wardens or those interested in a, in the career field. Hearing the stories and the viewpoints from other game wardens is very beneficial and entertaining. Absolute must listen! Exclamation point. And to go follow their social media accounts and check out the store as well. So thank you very much for that review. Again, awesome podcast! Exclamation point. Great interview with the game wardens from all over the country. Feels like you're sitting in someone's kitchen table with a cup of coffee, 
listening to friends talk about their most interesting jobs, especially love New England-based episodes. Humbly request more Maine Warden interviews. And we've done a few more, I think, uh, since that was uh, posted. So, and that's from the the Murdoch girl. So, thank you very much. Uh, great podcast. Wayne and his guests provide an enter- entertaining behind-the-scenes look at the world of wildlife law enforcement and the great outdoors. Listening to this podcast not only only entertained my family and I, but has also provided a lots of educational content. It has not only piqued my interest in working outdoors, but my sons as well. We look forward to each new episode. Thanks for the great content and excellent work. Super. I really appreciate that one. Uh, This is educational and exciting. I look forward to this podcast. Highly recommend, especially for current future game wardens or anyone who enjoys the natural resources. I only wish new episodes would come out more frequently. Thank you very much. Um, 10 out of 10. So, um, nope, that, that's great. Um, I, I put out as money as I can, and uh, sometimes I struggle to get out two a month just because of my schedule and everything else I've got going on. But I certainly appreciate that, and we will see in the future how we can uh, engage. Um, speaking of engaging, this one says engaging. A great, episode, a, a great podcast for anyone who enjoys the outdoors. Good interviews and stories with past and present game wardens and people who are involved in with any aspect of conservation of the outdoor lifestyle all and and all that encompasses. Nice to hear from different perspectives from all all genres and both men and women in the field. So I kind of butchered reading that one, but uh, and then this is an excellent podcast. These podcasts are outstanding. I look forward to listening to this. Every time it comes out, Wayne's an excellent presenter and has some great guests. Super. I'm going to leave it at that, and uh, I will continue on reading those, and I really appreciate those guys and girls that are adding to them as we go. So there's some been some new posts on Apple Podcasts, and greatly appreciate it. It's the algorithms that, that change things around, so if just like on social media, if you like somebody's page, if you make a comment or something, it, it just it feeds into that, uh, so it helps you reach people. Um, yeah, I could go into that. <laughs> I'm, I'm learning a lot since this podcast has been around, and just uh, the social media aspect of it. So, um, thanks a lot, and enjoy uh, Chris Johnson's interview, Alaska State Trooper Brown Shirts, as they're called. So on this episode of Warden's Watch, this is a part two with Chris Johnson. There's just so much you can talk about and so time you can spend and the stories just keep coming. And as soon as we stopped recording last time, Chris was like, uh, geez, I didn't even talk about the time my truck went through the ice. It was your truck, right? Well, it was my truck and uh, the suspect's truck. Oh boy. <laughs> oh boy. So this is a good one to, to, to get into, but I want to do a little clarifying on the first podcast, I was a U.S. Fish and Wildlife seasonal refuge officer, and that term has changed, hasn't it, Chris? Yes, it has. Uh, they now call them federal wildlife officers. Which makes so much sense. Um, yeah, I like for marketing, branding, you know, it's just clear to the point, and I'm sure you spend a lot less time explaining what you are. 
Yeah, what I was, I guess. <laughs> what, what you were. Yes. Yes. I'm sorry. Yes. No, no, no problem. Sometimes I forget. Yeah. <laughs> it's It's got to be hard to change hats and doing a very similar job. It's really been, actually, it's been just really smooth transition for me. I, I'm just loving it. Very cool. Um, back, you know, I'm in the field every day now. And before I was a captain and I was in the field quite a bit for a captain, but now my, my job is back out in the field again. So wow, um, really enjoying my time with the Alaska Wildlife Troopers. Awesome. No, that's, that's really good. You can represent both sides. Uh, there's not too many people that <laughs> you're probably the only one that can represent both sides for sure. <laughs> Um, so, you know, you caught my attention when you said the truck through the ice. Um, yeah, we've had trucks through the ice. It's never been, I can't think of ever been one of, I'm sure there's other game wardens that have put their trucks through the ice, but I don't even want to think about that because the paperwork just in my mind, I'm like, oh no, I hate to do that call to the Colonel and tell him, yeah, Colonel, um, (laughs) I just put my cruiser through the ice. (laughs) I, I kind of got lucky, but I'll explain. Yeah, Um, go for it. Um, well, uh, this was on uh, Hidden Lake. It's a real pretty popular lake trout fishing lake on the Kenai Peninsula in Alaska. And uh, there's there's several guys out there. It's kind of a game. In Alaska, you can't use live bait for fishing. Um, the hmm. big reason for that is they don't want to um, introduce non-native fish to lakes that don't have those particular fish. So. Mm-hmm. It's illegal to use live bait, so it's kind of a game with some of the guys out there. They they use live bait because it's more effective, and uh, they try getting away with it, and I try catching them. Uh, really, and the resource, they catch live bait. They'll put minnow traps out on the lake that they're actually fishing and catch them there. So it's not they're not introducing new fish, but it's still against the law. Correct. And it's kind of a game that they'll sit out there with spotting scopes and try and uh, – <laughs> Catch, watch the access point. So I try and find different ways to sneak on the lake and whatever. Um, so one particular day, I uh, parked on top of the hill before you got to the lake. And then I uh, climbed up a, uh, a mountain, a small mountain, and got a spotting scope out. And I could see that there's these guys that I that are typically trying to use live bait. I've caught them before um, using live bait. So I... Uh, sat and watched them did some surveillance for a while and i watched this this was uh late march early april so the days are getting long and the the ice is starting to get thinner um but still there was good two feet of ice most of the lake um so i was watching these guys i I watched them take off right about just before dark i watched them take off in their truck to the other end of the lake so i started on foot um trying to follow where they went. And as I'm walking along the shoreline, I, I spotted a, a tip-up. Uh, a tip-up is, uh, little, it's got a flag on it. When the fish bites the line, the flag comes up and hooks the fish. And, you know, the fishermen can see it from a distance. So I come along this tip-up. So I walk up to the tip-up. I pull it up. Up oh, there's live bait on it. So I put it. And then I'll, about that time, I see some headlights heading back down the lake towards me. So I put the tip up back in and I run to the shoreline and I hide in the woods and here comes a truck, pulls up, stops at the tip up, pulls it up. I run out, Dave, game warden, you're busted. He said, no, 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 it's not mine. It's the other guys. He said, nah. So I'm talking to him for a few minutes and then uh, we see headlights coming back down towards us. So I said, get out of here. I already know his name and everything. So I mm-hmm. go back and hide in the woods and now it's, it's pitch dark. 
and this other truck stops right at the flag and he runs out and he starts pulling it up and I run out. Hey, game warden, Dave, you're but this guy's name was also Dave and I, and I knew him. You're busted. So we ended up, he's no, it's the other guys. No. So I ended <laughs> up writing both of them tickets for using live bait. And then I hiked out and then I pretended to leave. I climbed back up on my little uh, mountaintop there with the spotting scope. And, you know, about a half hour later, here goes the truck back across the ice with its headlights on. So I said, you know what? I'm going to follow them with lights out across the lake. So I jump in my cruiser and I head across the lake. And, and I know this lake really well. At night with no lights, you kind of lose depth perception. There's this one area where there's, it's about 75 yards off of shore. There's a, a big boulder that kind of just barely hits the tip of the ice. In the springtime, that boulder gathers a lot of heat. So the ice around that starts to melt. Well, I lost my depth perception, so I didn't realize where I was on the lake. I'm just focusing on these headlights at the opposite end of the lake. And I'm driving along. I got my window down, and I'm driving along, and all of a sudden comes an immediate stop, and my I can hear water in my tires, and I'm not moving. And I'm, I got my foot on the accelerator. So I look <laughs> out the window. And I can see there's water on my tires. What had happened is I drove and I high centered my truck on this boulder and all four <laughs> tires were splashing water. So I'm out here. I look around. I don't want to get on the radio until dispatch that my truck has gone through the ice. So I get on the phone and I, uh, Barely have cell reception there, and I call my boss, and all he hears is truck through the ice, and then we get cut off again. Oh, uh, so he's kind of in a panic. I do reconnect with him, and then he comes down, and he uh, he's going to meet me at the boat ramp. So I grab all. I don't know really. It's dark out. I really I, I I can open my door, and there's actually ice right by my. You know, I I can step out. Uh -huh. onto the ice so i grab all my gear and guns and everything i can because i don't know what's going to happen uh -huh. i really haven't had a chance to take a look and see what happened with my truck i just know i got all four tires going splish splash splash when the tires are turning <laughs> and i get my light out and I go, okay this doesn't look good so i grab all my gear i can get out and then i haul it over to the shore and hide it in the woods and then i got about a mile and a half walk across the ice carrying my rifle and what my backpack and stuff to go meet my supervisor isn't going to drive his truck out on the ice. <laughs> and about the time I, right when I get to the boat ramp, here's one of the guys that already written a ticket and he's, he's drunker than a skunk. And he comes out and he starts talking to me and, and I'm in no mood to talk. I mm -hmm. just, hey, Dave, just go away. I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm kind of steaming. And uh, I didn't want to tell him what happened, but uh, so I, I get him away and I get a ride back to, uh, town with my supervisor and tomorrow we're going to go evaluate what my truck looks like because it was it was still it was still up um so the next day i head out there with one of our maintenance guys and my truck has a wench wench on it and we had another truck that had a wench on it, and there's still good two feet of ice mm -hmm. most parts of the lake so we head out there on the way out there i get a call from this other dave um one of the guys, the other guy that wasn't drunk, but the other guy that was up across the lake, and he he's kind of sheepish. He goes, uh, I heard you got your, your truck went through the ice. I said, yeah. And he goes, well, do you mind taking a look at mine? Mine went through the ice, too. 
<laughs> and I was like, oh, yes, there is a God. <laughs> <laughs> Said that myself. <laughs> so uh, I went out and I was able with two by sixes, put a dead man, drill a hole, put a dead man chained down through the ice, connect both wenches to uh, each other. And I was able to wench my, it was nip and tuck because right around this big boulder, it, it's 20 feet deep. I mean, mm. it, you can look down and it's 20 feet deep. There's just this big boulder sitting right there. But it was nip and tuck. I got my truck off the ice. And then uh, I later came back with a snowmobile. His his truck went, his went all the way. Just the, just the top of his roof was up. On oh, his. So, man. Um, and then I was able on snowmobile, I was able to find a lot. They had a lot more uh, tip-ups out on the lake. <laughs> so they were doing their typical thing they're putting out lots of lines with live bait and so yeah so that's to end this story it, it doesn't end that a couple of years later these same two guys same time of year one of them was driving it they're driving his truck across the same lake or his van and he went through the ice and uh he drowned i ended up pulling his body out of the lake but he's one of those same guy it actually was the guy that was really drunk at the boat ramp. He ended up pulling his body out of the lake. So that that's my my truck through the ice story. So how did you get the other truck out? Do you have like a, a company that specializes in that type um, of thing? Or luckily, he was he's about twenty five. There was a, a shoal sandbar shoal that made that that was gathering um, heat through with the sun, and it was right next to an island. So we were able to connect. I, I went out there and helped him. Mm -hmm. we were able to connect a couple wenches to some trees and we were able to pull it out. And then he was able to tow it off the, the ice. And it was, I think it was a brand new diesel truck. I'm sure it was trashed. Yeah, um, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, well, luckily there are some, well, there's not any companies that specialize in it, but we've had numerous trucks and cars go through the ice over the years. And we've had a couple people, get them recovered uh, mm -hmm. once with a helicopter and wow then, uh, another time they they put uh, balloons underneath yeah. the the vehicle and then they fill the balloons up and it raises it to the top and then they turn it to the boat ramp in the summertime but uh, mm. yeah so i've seen was, them cut slots too if they're close to shore cut slots with a skitter and hook a skitter to it and that actually folded the truck in half <laughs> oh really wow <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't a great Chevy commercial. So, <laughs> <laughs> but no, uh, anything through the ice. I mean, geez, in my career, I've had a groomer through the ice, which uh, it was pretty ingenious how they did it. They actually, you know, built a frame that slid over the hole, and then divers went down, uh, attached it. They raised it up into the frame, and then they used a skitter to slide it out of the, the area, which was a. Uh, pretty unique it, and that spot was just a spring hole just uh, developed on a small pond that they'd been running groomers across for years and years and years and and it was it was the dead of winter too it was cold so it wasn't wow. like it was a thaw it was just that spring hole 
uh, hadn't allowed ice to gather enough. So, and usually those groomers, you know, they're pretty wide, so they, uh, they disperse a lot of their weight too. So that was kind of a shocker to have that, but that certainly changed a lot of the way people did business and avoiding lakes. And you didn't have trails going across lakes and ponds as much anymore. The groomer would stop there and find another route around. Um, snowmobiles would continue on, but, uh, certainly, uh, during my tenure, and I'm sure nationwide, we've had quite a few vehicles through the ice. What, what I think of was when I was a trainee. So we have aquifers, and then you guys probably do around docks and stuff. So bubblers basically to keep them open. And I was I was a trainee then, and I was chasing a guy on an ATV, and I lost his taillights, and I thought he'd got up on the island. And I, so I stepped on it, you know, even, even faster. He was on a four wheeler. I was on a snowmobile and thank goodness there was a game warden ahead of me and started waving like crazy. And I put the old binders on (laughs) that four wheeler was in the water upside down because the tires were the only thing floating on that four wheeler. And the guy was in the water and he'd hit one of those aquifers on his way. So, and I was going to be shortly behind him if there wasn't a warden ahead of me to, to wave me off. Yeah, that was a, that was a gnarly, I think back to that. And that would have been maybe the end of my, uh, my career. (laughs) Yeah. And I think of another time (laughs) we have this big lake, it's called Skelac Lake. Uh, The Kenai river runs into it. It's a big glacier fed lake and it's, I think it's 12 miles long and it, it's over 1200 feet deep. Well, one night at the boat ramp, I saw headlights going across the lake a couple miles out and they were stopping and then they'd go on and they'd stop again. So I thought, ah, someone's putting a bunch of lines out. So I got the great idea. I'd go out there, lights off and follow them in their tracks. And uh, so I did, and I got out to this Island. There's an Island where there's some um, people live out on and, it, I got out there and I ended up talking to the guy and he was just drilling holes in the lake to check ice depth while he was driving. And he said, the first thing out of his mouth is, did you see that open water we drove right past? And of course, I'm driving with lights out. And I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> and now I have to drive back. That's the last time I drove a truck on Ski Lock Lake. I only take snowmobiles on there now or boats. Yeah. But, uh, uh, understandable, understandable. <laughs> and, and, and I love to tell the story where my old colonel, uh, Marty Garabedian, and the police chief actually took a physical cruiser across the ice because they couldn't make it up the hill. So they, they got onto the ice and off to the boat ramp where they got off. <laughs> but that was just the old cruiser cruisers. I don't think it was a truck, a uh, four-wheel driver or a Tahoe or anything, but... They couldn't make it up the hill that they needed that went down to the lake, so they decided to take the lake, if I'm uh, remembering that story uh, closely. But I always cracked me up that they took the lake and drove the cruiser down the lake uh, uh, because I would have gotten really a lot of trouble for doing that. You know, one thing I wanted to talk to you, Chris, uh, to get off uh, the subject a little because we got some really cool stuff to talk about, but physical fitness because a lot of people that are inspiring game wardens listen to the wardens watch podcast and physical fitness is become front and center for all law enforcement and i think you are a great guy to speak of that a for you know longevity and your career and to stay in shape i mean you don't certainly look your age you're 58 correct yeah i have to think about it yeah i am 58 yeah um uh, I did the math for you, but 
because <laughs> the feds made you retire at 57 you've been with alaska yes. for about a year so i i i guessed at that but uh you certainly a don't look 58 and for what you went through just to to, to take the the part-time academy with the alaska state troopers you know it was a, a physical fitness challenge for most people at that age so a you're inspiring to me and i think you'd be inspiring to all officers across the nation and the world in how to stay physically fit through your lifetime and especially when you're coming to get this job what to do and how to do it and how to maintain that for a career so if you don't mind speaking to that i think that would be beneficial to a lot of our listeners sure yeah it, you know physical fitness has always been a part of my life um just since i've been growing up i was one of those workout warriors i wanted i wanted to play professional football or be a game warden i uh I chose. I think I chose the right career. Mm, um, I, think you did I didn't too. have the talent to be a professional football player, but uh, <laughs> so I've always been a workout warrior. I, I used to lift a lot of weights. Over the last few years, that's changed. Um, I do more hit type workouts. Um, matter of fact, just yesterday I had my PT test to get back on the the cert team for Alaska State Troopers. Interestingly enough, I'd been on the cert team for 23 years, and when I got hired on by the Troopers. I had to wait a year to get off probation to get back on the team um, that I'd been on for 23 years. Um, <laughs> but anyways, I, I did my uh, PT test yesterday and uh, passed all that uh, fit for duty on that. So uh, you'll be back on it. I'll be back on it. And I got to qualify later on today um, to, to, to finish my uh, entrance back onto the team. But uh, yeah, that's, uh, I've changed my workouts over the years. My wife and I own a, a fitness boutique called Tide Yoga Studio, and it's more than just uh, yoga. Um, a lot of fitness classes and that. And I do teach some classes. I do teach some hit classes, high intensity interval training. I do it both on the floor, and then I, I have uh, a little bit lower impact workout that on little trampolines. Um, you can get the heart rate up, but it doesn't have that hard impact like jumping on the floor mm -hmm. um it's kind of fun too just to bounce around on these little trampolines um but i've changed my uh, workouts over the years I, like i said i used to be heavily in the weightlifting and it's changed more to more body weight and, and some lifting but it's it's for our job you, you got to be able to be physical fit you got to be able to track going long tracks hike into places uh, the other day i about by myself on a snowmobile and i got my snowmobile stuck Mm. and uh trying to pick up these snowmobiles we have nowadays they're they're five six hundred you know they're six hundred seven hundred pounds yeah and then you put your gear on it and then you're in snow up to your waist you got to be physically fit to do some of these things and uh, it's, it just got to make it a part of your life um the u.s fish and wildlife service they realized that so they they were actually giving an hour a day to work out which is that's that was tremendous mm. um do you, not, think, do you think a lot of very, people were taking advantage of that? Because I, no, you know, not a no, lot weren't. That, not a lot were taking. That's been my experience too. <laughs> so um, it sounds and, like a great benefit, but if you don't use it, then it, it's not a benefit. And you have to do, you know, most agencies have you have to do some kind of wellness testing every mm -hmm. year. Yeah. Um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, we had to participate. We didn't have to pass we didn't have to make any standards we just had to participate but i always took it as myself i always wanted to gauge how i was my physical mm -hmm. fitness so always tried my best and and so over the years i could see where i progressed and how things changed over over the years or how i decreased 
It seems like I lost about a minute on my mile and a half run every decade or so. Mm-hmm. The rest of it kind of stayed, you know, plateaued. But so it, it's a real important nutrition, it's an important part, eating right, getting good exercise. It doesn't have to be hard exercise every day, but you just need to get move the body. Mm-hmm. My my wife is a personal trainer, so I got a little help there. She kind of guides me on some things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a, it's a lifestyle, just like being a game warden. It's a lifestyle. Right. No, for sure. And they got to, you know, for new recruits, they certainly got to get that in their head. And to pass the entrance exams, they, they have to get into physical fitness. So yeah, to get there and to maintain it. I always, uh, I've never been a runner and it seems like running is a lot. I was a sprinter. I'm pretty fast on the, on the front end, but the long term, you know, I was a wrestler in high school. Uh, just my body wasn't made for running and I just never really enjoyed it. So that mile and a half, I dreaded it all the time. No, not that I wasn't, you know, not in shape, but it wasn't my cup of tea and the standards uh, to have that too. So, you know, I'm on the elliptical. I'd rather be on an elliptical. And then uh, I just started rowing again, trying to to do that in my, my 50s to see that low impact because I have seen the impact of being a game warden on my body. Um, I just got an, in, you know, my back, uh, I've got an issue with my back that I have to visit the hospital usually once a year and they have to, you know, uh, at the minimum. Problems. Yeah, your core. yeah, it's just, uh, and it was a stupid thing that I did not thinking. So snowmobile trailer frozen in, it didn't look frozen in the front wheel. I kicked it and then I, I knew if I put my back into it, it popped right up. Uh, guess what? It didn't pop right up, but my back popped so much that I felt that shooting pain through my body. And, you know, I was like, and then I was like, uh, it's not so bad. I'm like, oh, that's okay. I guess I didn't do anything. But the next day I couldn't move. And that's been with me ever since. So I will say don't, even the little stupid things and you hear, you hear about the little stupid things all the time. I mean, and I knew better. I just, it didn't look like the ice had gathered around that tire at all. So I just give it a good swift kick and loosen it up and I'm going to pop it right out. Like I had so many times before and pop my back out. And now I'm, I'm regretting it to this day and it will be for the rest of my life. That little indecision of not uh, working smarter and not harder, I guess. Yeah. I've, you know, I ruptured a quadricep tendon up. Uh, one time and uh, that was that was quite an ordeal that's a, that's a story for another day maintaining your health certainly uh improves your odds at not getting injured um yes t- going from the feds to the state are there different standards a um, little bit actually the tests are now very similar okay. um, over the years they, they were a little bit different because i always had i was always on the state swat team and they were a little bit different standards but like three, four years ago, they switched them. So they're basically, it's mile and a half run, push-ups to exhaustion. And then uh, with the feds, it was two minutes of sit-ups. With the state, it's one minute of sit-ups, as many mm-hmm. as you can do. So those are very similar. Right. No. So, but that's uh, certainly a good thing, especially in somebody, uh, I think it was uh, Tom McKinney actually said this the other day, that the physical fitness test is the only test that we give you the answers to, which... <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And I'm going to yeah. keep using that. So I'm going to continue to use that. And, you know, when I was testing, it was a mile and a half run. I was running two miles on the beach. I was exceeding that. So the mile and a half wasn't that that hard. 
Um, and I'm going to encourage everybody that's going in for testing, exceed the expectations. So when the expectations seem pretty dang easy when you have to meet them, they got to do 30 push-ups, do 40 push-ups on a consistent basis. And um, I think that is the way to achieve it, you know. You got to be you know, consistency. You can't be like a weekend warrior and, mm. and keep your physical fitness up. You, it just got to be consistent. It doesn't have to be intense every day, but in, consistency is important. Right. Yeah, and that, that'd be my biggest take out of it. Just be consistent with some type of activity, moving your body, right? getting that heart rate up. Yeah, and if you're in physical fitness, it, it helps you when you get captured too, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that brings up another story. Yeah, I, wa- I uh, want to hear this story. Chris this, Johnson getting captured. <laughs> yeah, this was back when I first started. It was back, I think, in 1992. I was a young officer in Alaska. And back at that time in the springtime it was not the the migratory bird treaty act didn't allow for taking of uh, migratory birds in the springtime by alaska natives or it just wasn't legal but we realized that that is an important part of their lifestyle and culture and their survival Mm. is in the springtime being able to collect get the birds that's their fresh meat coming in after a long winter and when we're talking about uh, the bush we're, we're talking about these are off the road system, hundreds, thousands of miles, may, may not thousands, but yeah, well, thousand miles off the road system. Mm. And they're living a subsistence lifestyle where they hunt and fish for their food. Right. Uh, the fish, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service realized that that was an important part of their culture and their survival in some of these villages. So we would look the other way at spring, at, at taking of some of the birds in the springtime, as long as they weren't these bird in dire straits. Like, for example, emperor geese or the black brant used to be uh, in low population. So there was an agreement made with the native associations that we wouldn't enforce the Migratory Bird Treaty Act unless they were taking some of these species that were in danger, like emperor geese and black brant. Mm -hmm. And then they wouldn't use lead shot. So uh, we were out on patrol in this area and by airplane. We were flying around uh, western Alaska. Uh, in a super cub, I was in the back seat, and uh, we spotted. It was April. We spotted some uh, hunters in an area where there were a bunch of emperor geese. So we uh, circled around and landed in the village in Newtuck, which is about a mile or so from where we saw these hunters. And we started walking down the beach to go contact these hunters. And as we landed in the village and then walked down the beach, we had a few people in the village come out and ask what we were doing and uh, explain the goose management plan that we were out there enforcing that and uh, continued walking down the beach. We got within maybe a quarter mile of the guys on the beach that were in the area where there was a bunch of emperor geese. And then they jumped on their snowmobile and then went down about another mile down the beach. And then they sat up on a little hill. So we, this, I was with an agent, uh, Mark Webb, uh, silver tongue. <laughs> he had a silver tongue. Um, anyway, we continued walking down the beach. We contacted these hunters. And about that time, here comes a posse of uh, 17 armed men. And they told us we were going to go back to the village and have a village meeting. And at that time, we had no communications. There was no radio communications. There was, there was no cell phones at that time. So I jumped on the back of the snowmobile with the, another guy. And Mark continued to talk to the most of the group there. And we headed back to the village in Newtuck. And on my way back, an elder of the village 
met us on the ice pack and said, he stopped us and he told me, you take off your boots, take off your boots. I Chris Johnson, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service here. You're on our land, take off your boots. And by that time I'd closed the distance and he had a shotgun. I, I quickly wrestled the shotgun away from him, unloaded it. And then about that time, here comes the rest of the posse. I handed the shotgun back to the, the elder, unloaded, jumped on the back of another snowmobile, and we went back to the village and uh, had a, a meeting with the village there. And they told us not to come back unless we told them beforehand we were going to patrol the area. Then they let us go. Then we went, we flew out. Interestingly, my, my, I had a really nice camera in my backpack that disappeared when I was there. Uh, they went through my gear. But that was uh, that week. We There's another time on the same, couple, I think the next day, actually, we uh, saw some other hunters in an area. There was a bunch of emperor geese. So we landed and started walking out to them. And they took off across tidal mud in their snowmobiles. I mean, there was no snow. They were taken across on their snowmobiles on tidal mud. One of the snowmobiles got caught, st stuck in the tidal mud. The guy just jumped off the back of the snowmobile, grabbed his bag of birds, and ran up to the other guy on the snowmobile and took off and just left his snowmobile there running in the tidal, tidal mud. And we were never able to figure out who that, when we went to the village, we were never able to figure out who the snowmobile belonged to. And during that time period, over the shortwave radio or longwave, I don't remember what it's called, it, over the, the CBs, we were known as the tall guy and the blonde guy. Back then I had blonde <laughs> hair. I think I was 26 years, 25 years old, something like that. And then the guy that was with me was real tall. So all over the Western Alaska, they were on the CBs, they were talking about the tall guy and the blonde guy. And we, we were able to make, we made a really good case. And this it's called Chavgon Blake, uh, Chavgon Bay. We caught some guys with 220 black brant, which were, they weren't supposed to take as part of the um, goose management plan. So we made a big, nice case on that. Since that time, treaties with Canada, Russia, and, and Japan, they've allowed for subsistence taking of uh, waterfall in springtime um, in Alaska. So there's, there, it is legal now to hunt some of these birds in the springtime, um, mm -hmm. which at that time, by treaty, it was not legal, but we'd look the other way unless they were hunting some of these species that were endangered. But that's my story of being that's a pretty good. That's a pretty good story. And then on the other hand, I mean, you don't want to, to rock the boat. I mean, you, you want to make the impression, but you want, don't want to rock the boat to the point where it hits uh, Washington, D.C., do you? <laughs> no, and, and then they were... Yeah, it was on the phone to uh, senators, and, and that's mm -hmm. not the only time I've been called into the senator's office. Uh, actually, we didn't get called into the senator's office, senator's office that time, but uh, there's been other times that we've been. Right. It, it is a sensitive issue, and at that, yeah. you know, particularly at that time, we weren't. There's a national wildlife refuge out there, Yukon Delta National Wildlife Refuge, and whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment. The clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, 
Log on to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. We weren't exactly popular with the refuge out there because enforcement wasn't, because it was causing them problems on on other fronts, like weirs and stuff, uh, some of these rivers out there around these villages. No. I get it. It's a it's a balance, and it's nice they actually uh, put it on paper so they can do it and doesn't put you in a you know <laughs> it's a tough spot to be in a, as an enforcement officer when it's illegal. But yet there's these handshake agreements saying that we're, we're, as long as you don't take those species, and then when you do take those species, that you know that's still that indigenous people and you understand the rights. So it's a that's a tough, tough thing, and, and game wardens across the, the nation experience that when they're First Nations. I think Canada calls them and mm-hmm. our, our, our the, the the people that were here first. <laughs> yes, um, it, it still is a way of life, a lifestyle out there, and uh, yeah. I think it's come a long way. And um, there's been other issues over the years where I've had to go out to Western Alaska and deal with some of these. Um, cultural issues really and that it's also concerns to them but it's just king salmon runs out across most of alaska now um are way down so there's been some restrictions on that and some of the way they used to uh, harvest their fish they can't do it anymore so it's been right it's been interesting watching some of the changes and and to explain what some of these villages, it is really a subsistence lifestyle out there. They are, they're mm-hmm. living off fishing game. Yeah, yeah, and that's the way they used to do it and are still doing it today. And yeah. if you rely on that, it's, it's a way of life for sure. Yeah, they can't um, just run down to the grocery store. Most of the villages do have a little store in it, but you're, you're talking about mm-hmm. $12 for a gallon of milk. Yeah. Um, yep, so you're taking as much salmon and putting that up for the winter. As you can, yeah. and in the spring, you're right. You know, fresh meat is uh, waterfowl, eggs. Um, yes. Until anything greens up, and then you're still gathering stuff to, to eat on a constant basis. Yep, yeah, that's yeah, it's a lifestyle. They, that's what they do. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, I've been to Alaska twice, and, and one of those trips, I ended up uh, going to a spot where they were dipping salmon. There was some people from the tribe there uh, dipping as well. And just uh, very efficient. And there was only a few of them that were gathering for the whole tribe. But it would seem like every time, every minute they were throwing a, a salmon into the pot. And, you know, I went over because I wanted to learn how he was doing it. And it was just kind of funny because, uh, you know, he gave me this big song and dance. How you know, he was a Native American and this was really good and had this connection with the salmon. And then as I got to, to, to talk to him, he's like, yeah, I'm just busting your traps. There's a little notch in here. They love to stage right here before they start up. So he's like, and, you know, my, my, my father taught me this and his father taught me this. So we go right to this little notch every time and I can catch a salmon every five minutes or every minute. But it was interesting to see 
that that way of life and, and gathering uh, food for the tribe and then uh, just starting a relationship uh, there. It was kind of cracked me up. So, but he he did like the the saga dance for a while and then because uh, <laughs> I was impressed. I was like, wow, <laughs> very cool, very cool. So. Uh, one of the other things, uh, we were talking about is snaring bears for gallbladders. And that was, uh, uh, it's still a thing. Bear gallbladders are, uh, certainly on the Asian market. I don't think they're yes. as popular as they were probably 20 years ago, but it is still a thing for sure. And as other things run out, other things become more popular too. So if you can't get your tiger tooth or your, you know, rhino horn, you go to back to gallbladder. So. <laughs> yeah, an aphrodisiac. Yeah, it's got a lot of special properties, mm -hmm. um, which I've learned. Um, yeah, this was a this was a really interesting case. It was, it was really a lot of fun to do, and it's pretty interesting. It's one of the biggest gallbladder cases in Alaska. Interestingly enough, it started. One of our biologists was flying around, and he'd seen uh, a camp near this uh, Indian Creek, which has uh, king salmon running up it, and it's closed the fishing for king salmon in the creek and uh, he saw a camp there and there's an it happened to be it's on a pipeline that's closed to vehicle traffic during most of the summer but it opens up during hunting season and it, it's pretty it's four-wheel drive to get way back in there mm -hmm. um, but there are a couple airstrips along this pipeline where when they're building the pipeline they built a landing strip so they could fly in supplies so there happened to be this group camping there and the biologist mentioned it to me and I was starting up with a first day of a new trainee. Um, it was his first day. And so we decided, I decided we'd go in and do a little bit of surveillance on this. So it was about a 30 mile trip in by four wheeler, or not four wheeler, but by um, four wheel drive truck. And then I planned to park about two miles away and then we'd hike in the rest of the way and set up surveillance on it. So we, Drove on in and hiked in, and then we're circling around the camp. There was a, a game trail that ran along a ridge above the river, peeking up there, and there's a, a snare in the tree right there. I said, okay, I'm just thinking, okay, somebody left one of their snares out uh, during trapping season and just forgot to pick up this snare, which off, it does, does happen when people put out a lot of snares. They forget where all of them are. Mm -hmm snow levels change or whatever just looks different they miss one so yeah i didn't think a lot i just thought okay someone forgot a snare here i uh, know people that trapped this area but as we started circling around the camp found another snare that was broken freshly broken um and brown bear hair all over a little bit of blood obviously after looking at it a, a brown bear had gotten part of its leg or something caught in this snare and it busted it and then followed it followed the tracks for a little ways and then we well let's get back on target here so now it's getting me thinking okay what are these guys up to we found a couple snares this obviously did someone just leave a bunch of snares out from the trapping season but as we started to get on the trail we could see there was fresh human tracks on some of these trails here and there was fresh like grease dumped all around where these snares were hmm. and other um, attractants. So, okay. So what now it's time of year? in my head. What time of year? This, is, this was um, in June. Okay. It's in June. So that started clicking a little bit. Okay. They're putting snares out. They're baiting it. 
I still hadn't completely thought about, okay, they're, they're getting gallbladders. So kind of circled around, did some surveillance on them, and we saw that they were packing up their gear and getting ready to leave. So I went and, we went and contacted them. There were a couple Koreans. Didn't, they said they didn't speak English. They were getting ready to leave. I asked if I could look in the cooler. I was still looking, you know, still keen in on maybe they are taking king salmon. And looked around. I didn't see really anything unusual there. That they did have one jar, that glass jar that had something in it. Mm-hmm. That was not. I didn't know what it was. I just picked it up, looked at it, said, hey, "What's this?" And he said something in Korean, and I, okay, I put it back in his <laughs> cooler. <laughs> didn't know what it was. Didn't know where it came from. Um, then after they left, we started. I started tracking mm. out of their camp. And found a number of places where there were snares. And you could tell that they'd been there numerous years because mm. there was thread. They used different color threads over the years to help, to help hold up their uh, their snares. And then I could see burn marks in the trees where they had actually caught some things mm. over the years. You know, Some were older burn marks. And we found one that was, uh, it happened, just happened. We could tell. So, uh we ran out of in, in days in the, in uh, Alaska in June are almost 24 hour days. And we were starting to get, it's starting to get like 11 o'clock at night. So we hiked back out and then planned to come back the next day and bring a metal detector and, and do a little bit better investigation of this, this whole area. I had the names of the guys. So I had knew that. So we came back the next day and we found, I don't know, there was maybe, a dozen different snare sets that we found. They'd been pulled. They're gone, but you could find near the thread hanging. They'd use the same trees. I think it was like seven different color threads on there. So we figured mm. in seven years, they've been coming back here, snaring bears along this. It's a salmon stream. Bears are going to travel along the salmon stream. Right. It was a good game trail right there. We were able to find where the one new burn mark is. I found a 223 cartridge with the metal detector and I was continuing searching the area and I noticed the moss was, had been dug up here. Just, just, you hardly could tell, but there was just one corner that was a little black. So I lifted it up and it was, Oh, someone cut the moss off. Pick it. And there's a black bear underneath buried in the moss. Mm. They dug it out. And then it was just an incision along the belly and the rest of the bear was intact. Wow. So there their MO was, you know, they'd snare the bear, they'd take the gold bladder out, and then they'd bury it underneath the moss. So you could, I mean, I even walked over this, and I didn't know I was walking on a bear. Mm. Um, but I just saw that one, we were getting down on our hands and knees looking for, we knew they killed something there because we found one 223 a shell casing there, and we knew they had a 223 with them. Um, so then, so we, we did our investigation there, photographed and did all our videotaping and searching of all the sites there. Then they used an air taxi to come in. So I did a search warrant on the air taxi and learned different places that they've been flying into over the years. And at that time, I started talking to a forest service officer, telling him what was going on on an adjacent forest. And he mentioned that they had some people report, a remote lake report that they found a bear in a snare. So I flew out to that area. And sure enough, in the logbook, and there's a cabin out there, the same Koreans had stayed at that cabin and it coincides kind of with the date the bear was caught in the snare and then went to some of the other locations that the air taxi had dropped them off and uh, was able to find old track you know, like 
trails out in the middle of these. I mean, these are really remote areas where there's mm. not usually trails. Started following these trails and I was finding these burn marks and threads in the in the trees where they'd been hanging the snares. So there was several different places we were able to find where they'd actually, I think there's six different burn mark areas where we determined that somebody got a bear or some animal there. We didn't, you know, couldn't tell some of them are pretty old. You couldn't, there was right. no evidence that it was a bear or anything. Mm-hmm. We were able to uh, determine that. Then we did an interview with them. Of course they didn't speak English. So I had to find an interpreter to. to so they were Korean. still in the area. They, they were, they're from Anchorage. Okay. Uh, but I did get some during the search where I found some records where they'd been flying back over to Korea um, several times a year. Mm-hmm. Um, don't know how many bears they'd actually taken the gold bladders. And they, the main character guy, he was, he was in his almost 80 years old at, mm. at the time. So, but was able to make a good case on them. Um, the fines and stuff weren't, I don't I even guess. remember what they were. They weren't significant. We took in consideration of his age and his health and, mm-hmm. um, but it was just, this really an interesting case, how it developed and how we were able to find all these different spots where they'd, uh, been snaring black bears targeting black bears but obviously they did catch a brown bear in that one because ended up we ended back going and tracking that to see if the the bear we probably tracked it a good mile mile and a half through Mm. the the brush and trees and stuff but it it actually found parts of the snare away quite a ways away where it come off the bear so it it injured that bear significantly but we didn't find it dead so Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. I'm glad we didn't run into it face to face. Injured brown bear would not be uh, a no. fun thing to deal with. No, and I'm sure that's why they were targeting black bears. It's <laughs> a little easier to deal with, I would imagine. But yeah, I, I just that investigation. It was it was really interesting. It was a lot of fun to work. Just trying to figure, get in their minds, trying to figure out what they're doing, how they're doing it, the areas they're doing it in it. Yeah. 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 And then um, what came to my mind, Chris, is when do you spring that investigation? That's one of those what you could have probably waited to the next year, caught them red-handed, or do you do the, you know, and that's, I think that that's a balance that we all do in our cases, when to pull the trigger on an investigation. And there's no right reason, no right answer, really. It's um, it's really nice to catch them in the act. Certainly it helps with prosecution. But also when you have a, a map laid out like that, like you did, and then do you have them, you know, participate in that again to, to harm the resource further? It is a real tough balancing act for a game warden to figure that out. But you want the most solid case that you can have when you bring if it goes to court. So and those are those are some of the, the scales that we weigh. That was like a perfect opportunity with a new trainee, with this investigation. We got to do interviews, we got mm. to do search warrants. We got to go back and do crime scenes, multiple crime scenes that right. over time. And th- actually, and this, the, like the trainee at the time, he was, an, uh, he loved to write. He, and I let him write all the reports. They were so good, much, much more detail, in detail than I would do. <laughs> I'm more like catch them and clean them and let's go on to the next. And, Boy, um, I bet you've heard that on my podcast before. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like we're cut from the same material. <laughs> But yeah, it was that was just a really, and it made you know, it was on the news um, up here in Alaska, and mm. uh, it was a, it was a good case. I mean, it it's ended a great up, case. The penalties weren't super, but we ended that type of activity at least right. with those guys. 
haven't seen evidence of that in this area since them, but but they're picking remote areas and it and time of the year when people aren't normally in some of these places. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, that was that was it was it was a great case and it was really good training and and it yeah. was a good case. I'd call it an epic case. Uh, and then just the the intensity of when you start fighting that as a game warden, putting it oh, together, yeah. and then finding that black bear. I mean, uh, you got the body. <laughs> yeah, that was and, and and then you know I, during the search warrant, we, yeah, we did find they had scalpels and everything. You know, it, wow. they were. And during the search warrant, did you recover any gallbladders? We did not recover any gallbladders. Yeah. And that's that's typical too. They they dry them out, they ship them fairly quickly. So Yeah. Yeah, and I learned a lot about the gallbladder gallbladder trade at that time. Um I don't know what they're going for now. Um and I don't remember what they it was it was a, a large it was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Back then, I don't even remember how much it was, but I don't know what they go for now. Right, and I think uh, as all wildlife ebbs and ties, you know, availability of other things, and for sure, and as they become available, if it's <laughs> if it's hard to get, it becomes more expensive. Um, I think of the Elver trade, our little glass eels on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. I mean, those can run up f- to five thousand dollars a pound in a good year. But if they're plentiful or they, they can't get rid of them is the other thing, then, then the price starts dropping down. But people can make a ton of money on wildlife at different times. So, And gallbladders were one of those. I think these, these guys learned their trade in North Carolina because I, I, mm. I did little investigations on that. And that's where they, they'd come from, North Carolina area. And I, and I know that the, the gallbladder trade in North Carolina at one time was mm-hmm. – uh, that was the, pretty big. Yeah, it was like the focal point for uh, yeah North America, for yeah. sure. So it, it was in, it was a really interesting case, fun to work. Did they move to Alaska specifically to do that? I don't know. I yeah. don't know. And it was so hard to communicate. Yeah, I had to have an interpreter with that could so mm. we could communicate. So you didn't build up a lot of that rapport that you can a lot of times when you're doing interviews on right. Yeah, just stuff that isn't really matter that isn't important to your case but it helps you learn a little bit more what makes them tick yeah absolutely how they're doing it helps you ask the right questions in the right way yes and that is so difficult with foreigners for sure um just growing up in different environments and <laughs> you almost have to know their culture to communicate with them on an intelligent level yeah because you know they'll look at you what are you talking about (laughs) (laughs) to to me is fascinating fascinating that way of life uh, for sure and uh, the traditions that they pass on and and such so i find that very unique but if you if you don't know how to talk to uh, the different type of people you you certainly you know are are probably feeling in some in your investigations some way somehow very very cool cool case Jeez, you've had a, a a great career. I told you you should write a book. Uh, but yeah, uh, I want to put in one more thing about just the transition over from Alaska State Troopers Wildlife Service. Very similar type of work. Uh, right now, there's Alaska State Troopers are recruiting. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a Excellent. twenty thousand dollar bonus. A twenty thousand dollar sign on bonus. Sign on bonus. You get a ten thousand after you complete the academy, and ten thousand after. You have you finish your probation? Yeah. Uh, they they are recruiting. What's your re- What's the requirements? Uh, you don't even have to have a college degree. You got to apply. It is kind of onus. The, the application process is 
I thought it was crazy. You know, everything I had to come, I had to come up with high school transcripts and college transcripts. But, and but all if, the if you're at that been, age, that's a, that's a great thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of things. It was hard for me to find that somebody new coming in. It'll be a lot easier, a lot easier, but uh, yeah. And then uh, some of the training that takes place at the Academy. One thing that's kind of unique to Alaska at their Academy. We have what's called survivor Island. Mm-hmm. It's the last week of, uh, our, our academy where uh, we learn survival skills and then they take you out on an island have you jump off a boat swim to shore and then you have to survive on the island with what you got for a couple days do you learn you know my uh, my group the guys there are two other guys that were with me they were both uh, lateral officers one was a conservation officer out of michigan we ended up making a gill net out of parachute cord where we stripped the parachute cord out to the single strands and then we made a gill net out of it and then put that out in the ocean to catch fish and you learn about survival and it's just it's just mostly mindset on survival mm-hmm. um, we are surviving there but it's mostly just to teach you a, a mindset about survival because alaska is different than anywhere else in the united states and i've For worked sure. all over the united states it is different um you could find yourself thousand thousand miles from anybody um at any time you know when you're out on patrol i mean a trooper could get sent out some remote village an airplane has problems or you could be out on snowmobile patrol or you could be whatever and you just have to have that mindset of survival so they try and instill this survivor island everybody has to go through and just Mm. learn some of those skills that you can survive out in the middle of nowhere with with what you got and adapt to what you have and yeah I mean, because the the possibilities of that happening in Alaska are much more real than happening probably in the lower 48, for sure. I mean, mean, our snowmobiles could break down and we could be overnight too. But again, you prepare for that. And we had radio communication 99% of the time, but you guys are flying in airplanes uh, a lot. You're on snowmobiles a lot. You're in those villages that are a thousand miles away. Yeah, out in the ocean, these remote areas on the boats. Yeah. So Survivor um, Island sounds uh, real to your state, and I think that is so smart to do. And it's a, it's a tradition that uh, the Alaska State Troopers have at their academy. Is Survivor Island is uh, that's your yeah. kind of your going away party, and and you you made it. And it, to me, it was a camping trip. It was yeah. fun, <laughs> but uh, to some, it's not. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, jumping in the water and swimming in. I mean, you start off wet. Yeah, uh, wet and cold and. Having to find, and where our, the academy is in Sitka, it rains quite a bit there, mm. and it doesn't. And usually, luckily, you know, when when I did it, it was summertime, and it was not. It was beautiful days, so it was really quite <laughs> nice. But other times, the, the weather isn't so nice. Right, right, for sure. You got lucky. So I'm sure there's been uh, some academies that have had a miserable time of it. Yeah, especially the ones that graduate in like November. Yeah. yeah they're freezing rain and yeah. pouring rain, whatever winds. And yeah. 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 And they're, they're still jumping off the boat and swimming into shore and starting from scratch because that's, that's the way it is. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that, that's really unique about the Alaska State Troopers Academy there. Um, and the way this, the Alaska State Troopers, we're all troopers. Mm-hmm. The, the, the blue shirts and brown shirts is what, you know, what, some of the public calls us the brown shirts are the wildlife guys and the blue shirts are 
do everything else. Mm -hmm. uh, we all get trained as blue shirts because we never know. We may be the only law enforcement in the village, right? The only one that can handle it. So we all have to learn, you know, everything. And you all do and Survivor Island. We all do Survivor Island. Yeah. Some of it like some of us like it more than others. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am always fascinated with these uh, shows like Alone, things like that, because I always like to to play that game in my head. What would I do? take pointers from them and that's the first one it seemed like real and i actually did a uh interview with one of the alone people yeah and uh it was uh it's 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 real it's real for them i mean they they are really there by themselves doing their own video they teach them how to do it they're surviving on their own and some of those guys uh get right into it and uh a lot of them don't last uh the amount they they thought they would and the biggest tool is the one on top in your head there your brain that's that's mm. your biggest survival tool because you can adapt to a lot of different things you can use a lot of different things for survival if you just use your brain right um, that's keeping that mindset of survival mm -hmm. survival yep and then you know there's those uh rules of three you know is it three days without water three three weeks without food um uh, all those things and what you can do in the process and what you have for material to, to gather and your knowledge, too. You're right. Your head is uh, the most important uh, tool there. Don't panic and, uh, yeah, get comfortable with it. <laughs> well, Wayne, I really enjoyed talking to you. Oh, and you can talk to you. And, it's it's uh, very good. It just keeps bringing back different stories when you talk about Yeah, so we should do a, thir a third show, right, Chris? <laughs> 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 no, uh, time it, goes by very fast. Uh, but on you know, an hour and two minutes here. And uh, yeah, it's very easy, like you said, to talk, to tell stories. I'm fascinated by Alaska, always have been. I think uh, a lot of us in the 48 are. I'm jealous of your career. Uh, I don't say that a whole lot. I've said that about uh, Hawaii, now Alaska. <laughs> you, you just can't do it all I, in I've one lifetime. Lucky. I've been lucky. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a playground for a game warden, for sure. Oh, uh, it, it sounds epic. And especially here on the Kenai because I, I actually, you know, I live in a nice house and the road system, but it doesn't take long to get out in yeah. the wilderness and, and all the resources that are right so there. close by. And then with the U S fish wildlife, I got to travel all over the country doing things. Right. I got to go down to Puerto Rico and do stuff, Mexican, yeah. uh, Arizona, Texas border. That was kind of fun. That was interesting to do is I wouldn't want to do it full time, but it was kind of like playing hide and seek for two weeks or three weeks at a time yeah um, working down the borders and being on the cert team here in alaska i got to do a lot of different interesting calls and yeah it's just it's been a good career and yeah. I, I just enjoy what i do i get it i get it and uh thank you for your service on both sides to the the federal side of it and now to the state side of it you know it's funny one of my students uh said he was going to go to alaska and, and be an alaskan state trooper and he graduates here in may so that'll be interesting <laughs> if he follows uh, if he through. has any questions you can direct them to me just uh, have them yeah call or text me yeah email sure. whatever for sure. <laughs> well, thanks again, Chris. Uh, I appreciate uh, sharing your experiences with the, the Warden's Watch listeners. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun all while serving the public 
and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experience of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. You want to succeed, you want to fish, you want to be one of the greatest. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.